in our march through the greatest thinkers, moral and religious theories, and philosophies in the wisdom literature genre, the hardest topics for me, if I'm going to be honest with you, to discuss are religious figures. Today, we take on maybe the greatest, or at least, one of the greatest religious figures, and in general, arguably one of the most influential figures in all of human history. His name is Jesus Christ. So I'm so glad you're along the journey with me. Yet, I hope if you're joining us for the first time, or if you've been listening in for weeks or months, that when taking on highly emotional topics like religion or religious figures, Remember, this isn't about having a strong faith in a particular religion or lacking belief in any particular religion, but rather that for us to grow intellectually, we need to be able to consider, study, understand ideas and opinions that are different from what we hold as our own beliefs today. It's a sign of a strong humble, and compassionate human being. It's demonstrating strong intellectual muscle when we can be open-minded about things that we may not necessarily agree with. Religion's hard because it just strikes deep into our innermost being that it's so difficult to even listen to anything that we disagree with. Emotions can rise really quickly if we're all honest with ourselves when we're confronted with religious views we don't necessarily subscribe to. And I have a challenge for you today. Let's all go beyond just closing off our minds or avoid those thoughts, those petty, ugly anger feelings that that we see online, that we see in the media between squabbling religious factions and atheists and and the world in general because there is much to learn in every single perspective on life. After all, we are studying the genre of wisdom literature and so religious text, just like philosophical or moral text, is just chock full of wisdom if we'll just take it and use it. And with that introduction done, I have to thank you for listening today. Thank you for to the new listeners and welcome. And, and, and I hope you find a home here. And for those that keep returning again and again, thank you. I so appreciate you being here and, and listening in and participating in on our conversations as we study across the span of human history. And if you haven't done so yet, go to the show notes and subscribe to the Intellectual Freedom Podcast Substack page. That this this is going to give you access to lots of free stuff, including access to ebooks from original sources that are highly vetted by myself and and that I'm using in our discussions in these podcasts. So let's get to it. Jesus Christ. I want to start out with a fascinating essay entitled "Quote Atheist for Jesus." It was written by Richard Dawkins, maybe one of the most famous atheists of all time. He was an evolutionary biologist, a brilliant mind, and in in this essay, Dawkins outlines the relationship between selfish genes and selfish behavior. He argues, given that our genes are mindlessly bent on propagating their own genetic material, regardless of the cost to the host organism— 
Dawkins concludes that selflessness or a giving spirit is an accident that doesn't mesh very well with evolutionary biology. He almost begrudgingly states that perhaps this is merely just a happy accident, but an accident nonetheless, that selflessness or a giving spirit shouldn't happen, just blind dumb luck. However, Dawkins' essay is not primarily about genetics. This essay is about ethics. As humans having some predefined ethical standard is a quandary for the evolutionary biologist type most of the time, where, where humans are nothing more than just this random creation, a, a, a set of lucky evolutionary twists that started with a big bang, bang out in outer space all the way down to millions and millions of years of genetic mutations and evolutionary fits and starts. And eventually, voila, we get to you and I talking here today about ethics and wisdom and religion in a podcast. But yet, the problem is, if we're just random creations, how, why, where, and is it even possible to have an ethical or a moral standard for all of humanity? This question is important. And, and Dawkins, with such a, a, an intellectual mind, he's not afraid to confront this. And this comes to the forefront. I mean, really, though, we all struggle with this and have struggled with this, well, since the beginning of humanity. So this conversation or argument that Dawkins lays out in that essay is right in our wheelhouse of a conversation for today. Because in the essay, Dawkins ponders the question, what leads some individuals to be loving and selfless to the degree that there is no possible benefit to themselves to act that way, but instead... Their selflessness, their generosity, their kindness is a guarantee of permanent loss. Dawkins in the essay wonders what we can learn from these crazy individuals whose behavior is simply not explicable in terms of maximization of their own personal fitness or their own wealth or their own fame. And this brings him in the essay to Jesus. And by the way, brings us to Jesus and some of his core teachings, which we will discuss soon. Now, Dawkins, back to him, would add or argue that he, he does not consider Jesus unique as in a god. Because obviously he was an atheist, but he focuses on Jesus because he seems to embody precisely and perfectly a standard of selflessness, compassion, and universal love. This makes Jesus a powerful figure in the realm of moral and ethical teachings. To the Christian, Jesus Christ is not merely a man, not merely a great teacher, not merely a moral leader. He is a God. In this podcast, I do not want to minimize in the slightest his stature as the Son of God, part of the Trinity of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
that Christians believe. As my guess is, there are many Christians who are listening in, curious about what a humanities instructor who says he's not going to focus on the religiosity of Jesus Christ, what he's going to say about him. And please, by all means, I have the deepest, most profound respect for the religion of Christianity. But here today, I need to draw out draw out and I need to outline for everyone, atheist, Buddhist, theist, Muslim, Jew, anyone of any faith or no faith, the teachings that Jesus Christ espoused and died for that all of us can grab a hold of and use. I think there is a powerful message that Christians, atheists, and followers of any religion can sink their teeth into on how to live their life. A message of unity is where I want to go with this episode. Along the way, we're going to discuss his history, his upbringing, and what made this person that many would argue to become the cornerstone of Western morality who he was. Trust me when I say I will not be attempting to convince to convert you at all to Christianity today. I'm not going to try and convert you to Islam tomorrow or atheism when we get deeper into some of the more modern philosophies like existentialism. That would be utterly pretentious of me to think that I can hold that level of sway over your life path. Trust me, I got plenty of my own issues, scars, and things I got to figure out, let alone me trying to tell you how to live your life. Your journey is your journey. It's not my place, nor is it my intention, nor do I have any right to attempt to tell you how to live your life and your spiritual journey. In the Intellectual Freedom Podcast, the goal, as I always state or often state is exploration. Your job in your life is to figure out your path. And hopefully this podcast and our associated readings on that Substack page and our discussions help get you further along your path. But back to Jesus. So Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, more commonly known in the current Christian tradition as Jesus Christ or simply Jesus. In the Jewish and the Islamic traditions, this individual is seen as a Jewish prophet and a healer. In the Christian tradition, he is considered the Messiah and the Savior whose death has redeemed the world. He is the Son of God, period, in the Christian faith. The artificial separation between the religious and the moral traditions has many times obscured the importance or even screwed up the moral philosophy of his teachings. Secondly, his very sound moral teachings, once they are entangled in religion and religious emotions, makes it very hard for the non-Christian to truly experience the value of his teachings. The separation of Jesus as a God and Jesus as a teacher can easily be accepted for the follower of Christianity. But it's not so easy for the non-believer. Any more than it's going to be easy 
for the Christian when we come to discussing Muhammad in Islam that they can accept some of the teachings separate from the religion. However, like Buddha or Muhammad, Jesus was almost universally accepted as an esteemed moral teacher during his life who tells us how we should live our lives to the fullest extent possible. And again, although it's nearly impossible to disentangle the Christian elements from the ethical theories, because to the Christian faith, eternal life is dependent and intertwined with the moral teachings that we're going to rip out as best we can to separate the moral teachings from the deep and sincere faith that the Christian followers read and study Jesus in the Bible and the sacred text. So this historical Jesus, who was he? He really was an itinerant teacher, a traveling teacher, a, a prophet, uh, a healer from Galilee. Uh, the history is surrounded with, with stories of healing the sick and helping the blind to see. Uh, he lived during the late Roman Empire, which, as every historian would know, a brutal and a very violent regime that thoroughly controlled and oppressed the Jewish population of Israel. And well, actually, pretty much anywhere else that the Roman Empire held power. But Jesus was reportedly baptized by John the Baptist, had a ministry that spanned ancient Israel, and, and was eventually crucified in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea at the time, after much, much pressure from the Jew, Jewish religious leaders at the time who found Jesus an utter new a, a nuisance, a, a pain in their side for calling them out all the time. I think we have to pause here because no discussion of Jesus or his life is complete without spending a few minutes discussing his death. Again, critical scholars are almost unanimously in agreement that Jesus' short life, which ended in probably, and most agree, his early 30s, culminated on the cross. Not in triumphs like esteemed prophets, but on a cross in horrific pain and humiliation. His biological life on earth ended very differently from the founders of the other major religions. Jesus did not live out his days in health and prosperity. Rather, he was nailed to a cross, abandoned by his followers, and mocked by the crowd at the moment of his death. The reason that this fact even matters is if we stop to think about it and even the most critical scholars can find almost no reason for the disciples to have invented the story. I mean, it's hard to imagine a scenario where every disciple sees Jesus die and rather than slink back to their normal lives thinking, oh my gosh, how did I believe this guy was a god? They continue with a tenacity and a faith to spread the gospel their entire lives across Judea, even crossing to Greece and Rome. And then every single one of them, minus John, was martyred for their belief in Jesus transcending the cross and returning to heaven and restoring eternal life to all of its followers. Nearly every one of these disciples was crucified, stoned, beaten, stabbed, whipped, 
bled out to death. I mean, all of them suffered some level of all of this stuff. Thrown in jail for long periods of time. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine all 12 were some part of an elaborate ruse. Uh, why do I say it would seem bizarre they're part of some elaborate ruse? Well, personally for them, there was no financial gain. There was no powerful position. And by the way, their reward at the end of the whole thing was nothing more than excruciating death. And that was their trophy for preaching the gospel after Jesus Christ had died. Just doesn't seem to hold a whole lot of water. The cross, now primarily a piece of flashy jewelry that you'll see people wear, was then, during this time, a symbol of the most horrific, painful, and shameful deaths imaginable. The Romans were brilliant at torture, simply brilliant, and simply brilliant at psychological warfare as well. The cross was the electric chair or the gallows of the first century, but even more painful than those two forms of death. Victims were stripped naked. They were paraded through the streets, and sometimes hung for days as they slowly and painfully suffocated to death. The Romans were masters of torture. They always had been, and they, they, were, they were great at it. And they could make a victim's time on the cross short or long, depending on the level of beating and whipping and blood loss prior to being nailed to the cross. And Jesus' time on the cross, relatively speaking to many of the hundreds, probably tens of thousands of people that the Romans had crucified, uh, Jesus' suffering uh, didn't last that long because he was so violently and brutally beaten before they put him on the cross. Yet, Jesus' suffering did not begin at the cross. It only culminated there. Which is why he's always had such a strong appeal to the poor, the racial minorities of of the region, women, those with disabilities, those those that had been suffering uh, immensely. He he got them, and they got him well. Jesus was not formally educated, nor was he famous at his birth. His family was materially very poor. He came from a family of manual laborers, and probably for a time he had to work in manual labor himself. How he learned to read is fascinating, let alone how he became a master of the written religious doctrines of the Jewish faith remains remains a mystery. More than likely, somehow, he was taken in and educated on the biblical test by someone, but that remains a mystery to the historians. But when he began preaching his ministry as an adult, he was supported and he was supported completely by the generosity of other people. He lived a very transient and unstable life and was essentially a wandering homeless person. In the book of Isaiah, in the Bible, we are told that he was a, quote, man of sorrow and one familiar with suffering, end quote. I mean, really, think about it. If your son, daughter, aunt, uncle, or parent came to you and declared at the Thanksgiving dinner table, hey, guess what? I am God. Literally, I am the son or daughter of the one God. I mean, heck, 
Your family would probably have you institutionalized. And for Jesus, many in his family probably thought the guy was insane. He was basically rejected at his own hometown. Um, But at the end of his life, he was portrayed by one of his trusted, one of his most trusted followers, Judas. He went through the depths of exclusion and poverty. And he knew this. And far from promising his followers a life of material blessing and prosperity, he literally told them to expect the very, the same kind of hardship and suffering and rejection that he was going to endure. If anyone believes mistakenly that the Christian religion glorifies wealth, success, and power and makes and make some inaccurate claim that life on earth will be easy if you follow Christianity. Well, that isn't actually the teachings of Jesus at all. Nowhere, at no time, does Jesus ever claim life was going to be easy on earth. In fact, he preached the exact opposite. Sadly, we have too many modern-day evangelists you know, the the get-rich type taking advantage of his followers by, by preaching some biblical success motivational talk. And we all have to recognize that those charlatans and scammers and snake, snake oil salesmen, I mean, they're really running contrary to the actual expectations and the very explicit commands of Jesus. Jesus exalted service over power. And he commanded his followers to do the same. And what makes him such a towering, incredible, and fascinating figure to study is is he suffered and he died for his beliefs unwaveringly and unabashedly and unapologetically. Very few, very few teachers, educators, leaders have that level of bravery and belief. Uh, We talked about one, remember Socrates, way back when we were in the ancient uh, classical Greek period, we talked about that. But that, that excruciating death on the cross, which is the pivotal moment in Christian theology, whether you're Christian or not, it should be respected by everyone of any faith. Because to die in that manner and to submit yourself to that type of death is no small feat. And very few human beings have the bravery or the courage to do it. Now, as I transition into the moral teachings, which is going to be the focus of our study of Jesus Christ, I must completely contradict what I'm doing in this episode with what C.S. Lewis would say that I'm doing in this episode that it is impossible to separate the moral teachings from Christianity, which is exactly what I'm trying to do. I get what he is saying, that they're inextricably linked together. So, well, let me actually read verbatim C.S. Lewis's argument of why what I'm doing is completely wrong. He said this, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently... However strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. End quote. I love this quote. It's an incredibly eloquent paragraph. Man, I wish I could write like that. Uh, Because I can't imagine being alive during the time of Jesus. As C.S. Lewis points out, number one, you had a Roman, violent, vicious occupation going on. Anxiety and fear along with anger would have just been palatable in the streets. Then Then along comes this teacher, this teacher basically railing against the establishment uh, religion of the Jews of the time, uh, calling them hypocrites, calling out their materialistic and legalistic views on religion and life and the sacred text. And you couple that with telling a very unsettled population to be selfless, to be giving and be kind and be nonviolent in the face of the Romans. Wow, not an easy task. And then, oh, by the way, This teacher makes a claim that he is the son of God. I mean, when C.S. Lewis says people would have had to consider him a raving lunatic or a god because nobody of sane mind would talk that way, the only person or type of person that would talk that way would be an egotistical charlatan. But the teachings of Jesus Christ were not in that vein at all. In fact, as witnessed in many of his stories, He lived nothing more than a simple life of servitude. For goodness sake, he would even wash the feet of his disciples, a a sign of of service and a a sign of being of a lower level uh, than the one uh, getting their feet washed. So when when C.S. Lewis says that the option of him being just a teacher or just a prophet doesn't fit, And you're left with two options, either one, he's God, or number two, he's a deranged lunatic or some sadistic liar. I mean, it's it's a compelling argument. Now, don't get me wrong. I love C.S. Lewis. He's a brilliant writer, just simply brilliant. However, his argument from a formal rhetorical perspective, it's, it's unfair. It's not a fair fight. And whether he knew it or not, his argument isn't a sound rhetorical debate, and and here's why. Because he sets up what is known as a false dichotomy in that paragraph that I read to you. This is a a fallacy in reasoning, the either-or fallacy or false dichotomy, whatever you prefer. 
this is a type of fallacy when a, when in a certain situation you only have a limited number of alternatives. In Lewis's case, he sets us all up like this. We have two choices in who Jesus was. He sets it up as if uh, I must believe he is God, but if I don't, well, that means I must believe he was a raving maniacal lunatic. But with all due respect to Mr. Lewis, I'm going to choose door number three in discussing the teachings of Jesus. But he was a brilliant orator, a brilliant mind, a moral, ethical, and powerful teacher that espoused a level of wisdom and lived it out that he is worthy of studying as a teacher regardless of a person's individual faith. This is where we are going to go. This is what we will explore for the rest of our time together. Because you know that that fallacy in reasoning, we see it ever all the time with the politicians. Well, you better vote for a Democrat because if you don't, then we're going to turn into a fascist Trump dictatorship. Or the Republicans say, well, you, you better vote for Trump, uh, but if you vote for Biden, you're going to turn the world into a, the, the, the entire United States as we know it's going to be destroyed and we're going to become the next socialist hellhole on the planet Earth. No and no and no. I'm not going to buy those either-or fallacies in reasoning. Life is way too complex to be boiled down to either-or. And you know, when you're confronted with these either-or uh, options, uh, either one, someone's trying to bum-rush you in, and, and really aggressively force you into a corner. Or two, they're trying to trick you, thinking you don't have options when almost always there are options. But back again to Jesus. So what in the world, if we can boil down his teachings to, I chose just five core fundamental ideas, what, what would they be? If we had to know anything about the teachings of Jesus, and again on that Substack page, go there, read, 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 read as much as you want to read. You can, you can expand your knowledge dramatically. If you're Christian, you probably read the Bible. If you're a deep follower, you probably read the Bible cover to cover many times, but um, what I'm going to try and do is, is take five core fundamental ideas. And for that answer, we need to turn to the Gospels, mainly of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the cornerstone New Testament um, books of the Bible. And there are some other books, too, that you can get some wonderful teachings on Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, and that bring insight into him, like Paul's letters to the Corinthians. But, but really... We get to the core of his teachings from his four disciples, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and in their Gospels, written roughly, oh, now we're dating them roughly around A.D. 66 up to A.D. 110. So let's talk about some of these core fundamental teachings. Um, number one, and you have to put this number one because Jesus himself is cited and documented as saying this is number one. Number one. Love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus literally puts this at the top of the heap. Uh, when asked which commandment was the most important, Jesus said this, quote, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto you. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It comes from Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. 
Part one, loving God requires faith as a Christian. But part two, loving your neighbor. Hey, all none of us are exempt from this. None of us. Loving your neighbor is open to every human on earth. So is Jesus just trying to guilt you into taking over a batch of cookies to your next door neighbor? Well, maybe if you've been a jerk to your neighbor or have a problem with your neighbor, but but I think it goes much deeper than that. And I, and I think you understand that too. Loving your neighbor the same way that you love yourself, that's no simple task. It is asking you to replace hate or indifference toward your fellow human being with love and replace your anger with kindness and to show a level of patience and understanding that far too often in our modern world we just don't have. We are very, very quick to judge in this social media-driven instant gratification world, and, and that instant rush to judgment is very common. Heck, we will accuse, convict, and execute on social media within minutes. And any comment that sparks outrage, this is our life now. Jesus is saying, hey, slow down. How about you treat that neighbor that person online or that other individual that's so hard to deal with in your life in a way that you would like to be treated. You know, I, I saw a study, a scary, scary study. In the world of politics, many Republicans find Democrat voters as one of the serious threats to democracy, and it cuts both wise. Democrats feel exactly the same way about Republicans. That's scary. That 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 level of closed-mindedness towards individuals living the, pretty much the same life that they're living, and that level of distrust and anger and vitriol towards somebody just because they don't believe your political beliefs. It shows how far and disgustingly awful these politicians have spun the minds around of so many people but jesus says no 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 you need to treat that neighbor that individual as you would like to be treated you should remember that number two living the golden rule in many ways i mean you can hardly separate number one from number two heck i could almost call number two number one b because they're so very similar Jesus taught the golden rule during his Sermon on the Mount where he said, quote, Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, end quote. In other words, treat others the way you want to be treated or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know that the social norm or philosophy of what's known as reciprocity has been used and was used in social media and political philosophy for a while before Jesus. One example would be Plato as he spoke about that in one of his works. But, but this philosophy that Jesus preached on was really just the expectation that people will respond to each other in similar ways. Responding to gifts and kindness from others with similar benevolence of their own and responding to harmful, hurtful acts from others with either indifference or some form of retaliation. They say common sense isn't all that common anymore, but really it could be this simple, that you're going to be treated how you treat others. Seems like a pretty basic, clear, and obvious statement, yet we as humans suck at it pretty bad. 
thought was funny, at least to me, to read online discussion forums where supposed grown adults banter and name call each other, especially about politics. I mean, if you call people stupid, ignorant, racist, sexist, socialist, or whatever ist you choose, what in the world would make you think they would respond back to you with kindness? They're going to respond in kind to the way that you treat them. Is it right? No. But is it normal? Yes. It's just awful to see. But that simple task, of treating other people's people as you would like to be treated seems like a wonderful start for many to bring more joy, peace, and happiness into life. As you will, as Jesus says, ultimately get back what you give out. Number three, freely forgive people. While Jesus was on earth, Peter asked him, quote, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus responded, I say not unto thee, not until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. When we freely offer forgiveness to others, we can invite much more peace and forgiveness into our lives. This can also be incredibly hard. None of these are easy. And this is probably why the greatest wisdom teachers of all time almost all talk about forgiveness. Our human nature is one where we do not naturally forgive easily. We hold grudges. We want revenge. We want to settle the score when we're wronged. We wield that wrong like a weapon and we pull it out when necessary. But living this way only hurts the person who withholds forgiveness. As the old saying goes, being angry at someone for an extended period of time is kind of like eating poison and expecting the other person to get sick. Doesn't happen. It's unwise to hold unforgiveness in your heart. And Jesus repeatedly speaks of this. As a side note, you can forgive someone of a wrong, and you should, but there are serious situations that doesn't mean you have to trust that person again right away. I mean, you may have that one friend in your life that is terrible at managing money. You loan them money, then they never pay you back. You can forgive them for the act of non-payment, but that doesn't mean you have to keep giving them more and more and more money every time they ask. I think you get the point. Uh, number four, don't judge other people. The perfect story comes to us in the Gospel of John in verses 8 through 11. It goes like this, quote, At dawn, he, I'm talking about Jesus here, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, quote, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, quote, Let any one of you who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, 
the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up again and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. End quote. I love this story. This story is so simple, but yet so powerful. Jesus and his teachings had a way to cut to the quick. I, I can imagine a mob of people yelling, screaming, cursing, mocking this woman. I'm, I'm sure it was an intense scene. Yet Jesus was calm and quiet in the middle of this uproar. I can imagine it kind of like a bloodlust moment. And, and, and by law and by culture and by tradition, what should have happened is that woman should have been executed in front of everyone in a horrific death of stoning. But the power of Jesus in one simple statement, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her that silenced and diffused the situation in an instant in an instant now we don't have a public stoning anymore i mean literal public stoning in the town square whoever online or twitter or facebook or all kinds of social media people are being stoned to death or crucified or any analogy that you can think of every single day for doing this, that, or the other. My goodness, the keyboard warriors who got it all right and their self-righteousness, it's really rather disgusting. Way too many people are too quick to judge and too quick to join that online mob, whether it is condescending name-calling, unsubstantiated rumor-mongering. We are, in many ways, no matter no better than that mob that was ready to literally stone a woman to death for her sins. Yet are we innocent and pure enough to judge other people's faults? Do we have nothing to be ashamed of? Or have we never screwed up or had evil, bad, vile thoughts, let alone actions? Jesus challenged everyone to look internally and to worry about getting our own minds right, our own minds clean, our own mind uh, in, in proper order before we go out seeking other people to bring down. What an excellent moral lesson for all of us to think about. And number five, serving other people. This idea appears over and over and over again inside the Bible. So, so we have to pay attention to it. And I I have to mention this is one of the top five. Here are just a few of the specific verses that speak of the requirement. Yes, the requirement to serve other people and to put other people above our own needs and our own desires. Here's just a few of them. Quote, a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you. End quote. John 13, 34. Quote, and be ye kind one to another and tenderhearted, end quote, Ephesians 4, 3. But he that is the greatest among you shall be your servant, end quote, Matthew 23, 11. Even as the Son of Man came not to, 
to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many, end quote, Matthew 20, 28. Husband, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, end quote, Ephesians 5, 25. So you can see in pretty much every single aspect of life, our job, uh, yours and mine, uh, we need to serve other people. But why? Well, if we stop and think about it for just one minute, serving other people requires a number of very important attributes. We can't be selfish when we're serving. We can't be self-absorbed when we're serving. We're caring when we're serving. We're giving when we're serving. We're demonstrating humility by putting ourselves second instead of first as we serve. We're non-judgmental if we're serving with the right heart. And so many positive human characteristics that if we serve other people, we will in turn become better people because we put other people above our own selfish interests. And then to conclude this section, Jesus really embodied that idea of servitude his entire life. He literally gave his own life in an excruciating death so that everyone would be given the gift of eternal life. Now that is an ultimate act of sacrifice and service. So there you have it. Five core fundamental teachings of Jesus. Love your neighbor. Live by the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be quick to forgive people. Don't judge other people and serve other people whenever and wherever you can. I mean, really, when you think about it, imagine a world where everybody attempted to follow these rules. Because let's be real, in, the, in, in this world, we're, we're never going to be perfect at these. None of us ever. But imagine a world where at least everyone was conscious of these rules and did their best all of the time to observe these five simple rules and then would make alterations to get better when they mess up. But maybe even that's too big, the world doing this. Maybe let's just consider taking on these five moral teachings in your life and me in my life. If every single day we keep these principles in our mind, these five core teachings of Jesus, and we try to live them out in real time, in real activities, wow, we would become better people. When we're online, when we're at social gatherings, when we're deciding what we're going to listen to and what we're going to watch on TV or, or listening to podcasts or streaming on our computer, imagine if we take these five things to heart, how very, very different your day would be and how people around you and close to you would perceive you. It's almost a guarantee things would improve. These teachings could change your life forever, guaranteed. Stripping away all the religion of Christianity and faith and just focus on the teaching, it's hard to find any fault with any of these teachings. They almost nail down good, honest, ethical, moral ways to live life. And that, my friends, is why reading the Bible 
and reading about Jesus Christ has extreme value for every human being, regardless of their faith walk. So there it is, the teachings of Jesus Christ. A very quick one, a Reader's Digest version, obviously, but I truly hope you enjoyed this. I, I truly hope you found value in it. I, I know people that are Christian. Uh, these things are completely self-evident to you. You've probably studied them your entire life. Maybe you still got a long way to go in walking them out. And I know there's a certain segment of the Christian population that really, really, really needs to focus on these four, on, on these five key values. Um, they would be perceived very differently from those who do not necessarily believe in Christianity. But even if you're not a Christian, you're an atheist, or if you're a Muslim or, or, or someone else, maybe you just have never really studied Jesus at all in, in some of his teachings. And I hope maybe this would spur you to, to, to want to study more, regardless, again, of your faith walk and, and, and what you believe. Because in reality, as I always say over and over again, you know, we, we need to become more wise, a more intellectual set of human beings on this earth. And, and we have to open up our heart and our mind and our emotions to looking at things that are uncomfortable or that we don't necessarily always agree with on the surface. And we need to try and go deeper. Go deeper all the time. Find things and discover things in your life and find and 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 through this process of self-discovery you're, you're going to uncover things that you can apply to your life and your situation because if you do this just even a little bit every single day or heck every once a week in this podcast you're, you're going to be light years ahead of where you are right now but again as i was doing at the end of the podcast have a look at to it you can go beyond anything i've been talking about here in this episode uh, free links are there free contact information uh to me if you have questions comments concerns about anything that we talked about inside this podcast uh, so that you can go deeper i would love to hear from you and at times i've heard from people and it kind of helps me alter a little bit the things that I'm talking about inside of the episode. And so, you know, please, please join the Substack page. It, it, it'll give you much, it'll give you a much deeper and a much more broader appreciation of everything that we're, we're doing and how it and give you insights in how I prepare and the things I talk about um, every single week inside of the podcast. Next week, uh, we're going to continue on and I can't wait to continue our exploration of wisdom and the wisdom literature genre uh, and, and, you know, walking this out with you uh, has been a lot of fun and, and, and I hope you have a wonderful week and we will talk to you again soon in the next episode.